You know, I just noticed you actually still have the Intel sticker on your laptop. Yeah, I suppose I do. So you're not like a sticker remover, but you also, uh, you haven't added any more stickers in that general region. You do have the stickers on the lid, though. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I've collected new stickers, so I haven't, I haven't thought about it for a bit. What about you, Brent? Are you a no stickers guy, or are you a some stickers? Do you take off the stickers the machine comes with? I traditionally did because I didn't want to have all that. It's the difference in texture that got me, but I'm looking at my laptop now, and I'm embarrassed to say there's actually a Windows Pro sticker on the bottom of it. Oh, no. <laughs> Brent. I know. Do you still have that license key? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you never know. I'm sure I do. Maybe it'll come in handy one day. Hello, friends, and welcome back to your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And my name is Brent. Hello, gentlemen. You know, coming up on the show today, we thought, oh boy, we've done a lot in the last few weeks. We had the Tuxies, we rolled out a new server, and we chatted about ways that might be a little bit outside the box to fund free software. And we realized we need to take a minute and catch up with everything you've been writing in. There's a ton of feedback that's coming in, some really good, deep thoughts. People have spent some time... They've really wrote some compelling arguments. So we want to give it all a little bit of a fair share and uh, take the counter perspective in, talk about those things. And then we're going to round out the show with uh, some picks and some, I don't know, do we actually have any picks? I don't actually, I mean, I go, I have some surprise picks. We could do a surprise pick. That could be kind of fun. Oh, hmm. yeah. Okay. We should think about how we can make that fun. Also, we got later in the show, we got to do a check-in on our new server. There is a new kernel. And it's time to upgrade. Uh-oh. Yep, we're going to see how that CFS array holds up. So before we go any further, we got to say time-appropriate greetings to our virtual lug. Hello, Mumble and Jitsi Room. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here on a Sunday on our new time. Since we've moved to Sundays, we've been co-running a, a Jitsi Room, which we're still working out. But uh, it's also... A very interesting technical challenge from like a jack audio routing side to have mumble, jitsy recordings, and all of that on one box. So it's been a fun experiment. You could hang out in there and you get the video feed, which is pretty much just the chat room, which you could just pull up on your own. Maybe a random Brent shows up on screen from time I to time. I bet so. Or you could just come here and maybe you'll see him in person. Although maybe not. This is Brent's last day. Oh, uh, uh, well, not tomorrow, I suppose, is the day I try to get out of here. Not but. last day in general. Like you're not dying. You're not leaving. Oh, right, 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 right. Well, we don't last know how his travel's going to go. I mean, it was pretty rough getting here, so. I, I mean, I saw you guys whispering back and forth uh, earlier. I don't know. Maybe you're inspiring to have me stay. It's I don't like, think the shackles arrived in time. We're just trying to find somebody that could just maybe take a test for you. We don't necessarily need to get you sick, but we just want the test to fail so they won't let you leave. That's all. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's coming up, but it's been fun. You know, there's been some construction projects. The studio has a new door. And uh, a new a new floor around the pooper upstairs. That's been pretty great. <laughs> we're really getting this place place ready because on the thirtieth we're having our uh, meetup and hangout. We're gonna do a live lup. We're gonna open up the door to the audience. Have you come over? We'll show you the hard work that Brent did. Probably not, but you know, because it'll be covered up. But you know, you can still come out, hang out. I can't guarantee Brent will be here though. Well, you can never guarantee that. No, but I, I think you're gonna be here. I'll be here. Probably yeah. a pretty good guarantee of that. Yeah, definitely. Probably, you know, Levi will be here. So that's really all you need. So meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. If you want to come chow, uh, bring, bring a, your favorite meal is encouraged. You don't have to. We'd still love to have you. But, you know, it'd be nice if you brought something. Well, not your mother. Yeah, you know I'm saying. I mean, unless she's into Linux. Yeah, actually bring your mom. That'd be great. I'd love to meet her. 
So we have put out a couple of fun episodes, and I say that legitimately. You know, sometimes people say, oh, they're fun. No, they actually were a lot of fun because Brent and I kept the microphones rolling during our road trip this summer to Denver. We captured some good stuff, and we just published two episodes from that series. One is just kind of our memories of the road trip and what some of the harder moments were like and some of the hashtag RV life moments that Brent had to learn. I had to learn them the hard way and the quick way. Yeah. And I think that was pretty a pretty fun way to do it, if I Although remember. I got to say, we must not have wrecked you because Brent spent the night last night at Lady Jupes. Yeah, and it's like coming home, right? And the slide was working this time, so right. it felt like 30% bigger. <laughs> I don't know. Great, like, great stuff you guys Isn't that nice? There. Yeah. Oh, it's just high fluting. Uh, and then the second episode we just published, we actually recorded while we were on the road and we just been we've been waiting to release it and it's all of the tech that we used so from internet connectivity and VPNs and how we use the uh, audio equipment and how we did all of that i mean it's just the whole range plus the automation stuff i do in the RV that's all in that extra Am I ever uh, happy we recorded that when we did? Because you and I were trying to remember all the tech that we used, and it was a mountain of tech to make all of that happen. I was impressed, for sure. Yeah, I remember how you just kept doing all the shows pretty much right on schedule while you uh, yeah. traversed across the West? Yeah, and it even held up in Tucson, which was really putting it to the test. So that's all over at extras.show, and there's some more in the pipeline, so you can always subscribe to that. It's not a very um, active feed, so we're not going to spam you with a ton of shows. Uh, we are trying to do a little bit more in there just because we like to hang out as a group. And sometimes we like to do that online. So we thought maybe we'd try to capture that more often. And now that we're doing the show on Sundays, Tuesday has kind of opened up. And it's not something we're going to do long term, but at least for the short term, we're kind of hanging out. And sometimes I'm releasing kind of the best bits from that in that feed as well. And, you know, it has to be of a certain bar. I'm not just going to throw anything in there unless, you know. Unless I got nothing else. I mean, let's be honest. No. <laughs> I think the fun quotient is really how we're measuring it. So. Yeah. It was a good time. It was a good hang. So go get, you can grab that at extras.show slash subscribe. So let's, let's just kind of make a whole episode out of everything that people have been writing into the show about. And let's start uh, in our feedback grab bag. Simon wrote in with some feedback about the tuxies. I think that's probably a pretty good place to start. Yeah. Simon wrote, hey gang, really love the tuxies show. Thanks so much for that. Just one comment. Not sure I agree with the two-year Hall of Fame bit where the winners are not involved next year. So, for example, when Plasma wins next year, it'll be a bit of a hollow victory. I think Gnome should be able to fight to keep their crown. I think Simon touched on something that I was really conflicted about. Right. Gnome is a great example because Gnome is the default for so many popular distributions that it just has this massive advantage in the marketplace. We, kinda, we don't want it to always win, right? That's boring. Right, exactly. So like the idea is if it wins a couple of times in a row, you can assume this is a people's favorite. And now out of what's left, what do the people like? That was sort of the philosophy. But I'm not sure it's the right solution to the problem. And I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on it. Yeah, it does seem like the implementation has uh, has a few issues. And we have time to figure it out. I mean, maybe there needs to be a higher bar. Do we just not? Do it? Do we need better categories? Hmm. I think that's fair. Let's imagine a world where you don't exclude Gnome because it's been uh, a two-time winner. The day that it does get dethroned is more significant because whatever you know replaces it or surpasses it, it's a well-earned accolade at that point. How do you strike the balance and still make it interesting and not just have, well, Gnome won again this year? Like, How do you get that right? 
Well, I, I think it's it's more interesting to look at how the ratios work out year after year. So, for example, uh, sure. Plasma and Gnome have been closing the gap over the past two years, even though Gnome won twice. I, I think it's pretty fair to say that was something that's the, an interesting trend was the gap between Gnome and Plasma for the viewers has closed. What happens, you know, the day that that flips is going to be a very interesting day indeed. Yeah, that's a good point. I agree with that. So, like, keeping the options on the table also lets you fairly judge how people are feeling about everything on a year-to-year basis. And that gives you more reasonable, more useful data over time to, to, to judge trends. Like, if you remove GNOME next year, then you're basically saying, by default, you accept that GNOME is going to be number one forevermore until it comes back into the list. And so these are all jockeying for number two. I think that's an unfair position for people to have. And I think that's somewhat flawed because you're also changing the way people think about their choices. And so you don't necessarily know if they're actually voting for number two or number one. So it throws into question what the value of the data is year over year when you're trying to figure out what the trends are. All right. So I think sounds like the solution is to keep it, not do the Hall of Fame, but for us to kind of watch the difference in the numbers and in, in the proportions to the votes if if something's pulling ahead, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And have have a podium. So, you right. know, each year there's a, you know, first, second and third place. And then you can talk about how the movement has been affected in that top three position, because you can see potentially who the up and comer is and how they're performing against sort of the incumbent and maybe at some future date when they, you know, surpass it. So, yeah, I think track the data podium finish and then you know you've got a more accurate reflection of like how trends move because you know there was a time when you know ubuntu would have been at the top of everything and that's not the case anymore because there's many high quality distributions out there and they're all doing different things and people's interests are reflected in the way that they vote i feel like part of the answer is also to ask the right questions in in the form of the categories you know, we can formulate the categories in such a way that it might hint at the up-and-comers as well and, and bring those to light. So there's there are multiple ways. All right. Well, then, meeting adjourned. The feedback has been taken, and we will make the change to the tuxies. I like it. I knew it felt kind of weird to me, but I was trying to come up with the right solution. So I, but I like this. It also feels like this is the strength of feedback. Like, we love yeah. when you challenge us on our ideas, and then we get to change for the better for everyone. So thank you. Absolutely. All right. How about our next one? Yeah, Max writes in asking, is Apple helping Asahi? Mid-last month, Apple, perhaps inadvertently, helped the Asahi team by adding raw image mode for kernel files. It was a minor thing, but according to Hector Martin, it's actually a pretty big deal for that. Do you think that Apple will continue to help the Asahi team in little ways, or, or at least stand aside and not interfere? Or do you think that as the chip transition completes, there's a possibility of them introducing some major roadblock. Hmm. I have some conspiracy bacon in this regard. Oh, get that frying pan out, buddy. I think it's possible that we might be seeing maybe a bit of a movement internally at Apple from the engineers. Simply put, I think the Apple engineers realize there's some areas where they can make modest improvements and it doesn't really get noticed by upper management because it's so low level in the stack. And it makes it easier for Asahi Linux to have future updates. And according to Hector Martin, he's really pretty convinced that there's no benefit to Apple directly by making this change. 
It simply helps Asahi Linux. And my thought is really simple. If I were making badass system on a chips that had great performance and had a bunch of specialized processors that were exactly the kind of processing load you'd need on the kind of cloud that I have, like the photo cloud, I'd be wanting to run these in a rack. You know, no stupid casing, just like Google does, just motherboard on the rack, running as many of these M1 boxes as possible. Oh, a beautiful Mac rack. And I'm not going to want thousands of Mac OS systems. That's ridiculous. I am going to want thousands of Linux boxes. And it's in Apple's best interest to have this community do all this R&D for them. And if an engineer can slip in how it handles a boot image and make a little tweak to make it easier to run Linux, so that way a year down the road they're popping Linux onto their boxes, I think it's a no-brainer for them. And uh, it's not like anybody's going to notice at up the stack, right? From the work I've been doing on QuickMU, I've got quite acquainted with the Mac OS internals and certainly tracking the way that Vert.io support has been increasingly added to and improved over several Mac OS releases. My feeling is Mac OS do now have a very desirable silicon platform. And particularly when you look at where NVIDIA is dominant and where Intel and AMD want to compete with NVIDIA, it's in the compute AI ML arena for data centers. And Apple have got a silicon platform that could enter that world in a meaningful way, but not running Mac OS. So I can see that Apple would be interested in seeing how they can further improve the way that they can deliver their hardware platform into the data center for use for those increasingly popular workloads and also the main driver for developer-orientated laptops you will notice are always equipped with high-end GPUs. That's like an absolute staple and a given. So I can see that Apple, this may look innocuous and maybe benevolent, but I th- I think there's a method to the madness. I fully anticipate that we'll see a return to Blade-like devices from Apple going into data centers rather than racks and racks of Mac minis in rather cumbersome and awkward aluminium oh, squares. <laughs> I hate those things. But like, I also think that there's another aspect to this, right? So Apple runs their own private cloud infrastructure for their for their services. And they probably want to be able to run it on the Apple platform on the Apple hardware platform for themselves. They are almost certainly blocked from contributing their internal Linux spring up into, into the upstream projects. But if Asahi does it and it just happens to work enough, then they they get less work on their front and they can run Linux on ARM internally for their infrastructure. And that also has the knock-on effect of making Linux virtualization on macOS smoother. Because right now, if you do Linux virtualization on macOS on an M1, it, air quotes, works. But like the it is imperfect and a lot of stuff just doesn't work quite right because the current platform assumptions are wrong. And so a lot of what this is going to do is make that even smoother. And then eventually bare metal Linux on M1 platforms will be, or M2 or Apple Arm or whatever you want to call it, it will be a thing. Maybe they will do X serve back from the grave and start doing like server arm platforms. I'm not holding my breath for that. But what I do think they're going to do is they're going to do it for themselves. Yes, for sure. 
I can't remember the exact figure, but they the, their contract that they agreed with AWS a couple of years ago, it was an ungodly amount of money that they committed themselves to for their uh, AWS uh, sort of committed um, usage. Now, Apple are not short of money, but nevertheless, you don't become one of the richest companies in the world by spending frivolously. So, yes, I could right. absolutely see what Neil's explaining, where they uh, create a private cloud environment and they run Apple on Apple. Well, we know how much they like having you know full control True. things up and down. Well, and they do have those. I think they have, what, at least two ginormous data centers in the United States that are just monsters. Um, so, yeah, we could see it. I, I think that's definitely... Definitely likely. It's it's an internal effort to just keep it going. Uh, now, unfortunately, that probably means they're not going to be super motivated to like make the GPU easier to get working. Well, the GPU is a function of the of the CPU itself, and the way that their the way that their hardware platform is designed, the operating system driver in macOS is intentionally super dumb, and that means that a lot of the smarts happen at firmware initialization time rather than operating system initialization time. Um, at least that's what Hector Martin said in one of his live streams. It's also kind of funny that um, I think there's there's some subset of us that are just, there's this fear, right? Like, I don't know, it just seems like to me it's one of these things that uh, if it happens, it happens. But yeah. like Hector's incredibly clever, the community is is incredible. So we'll deal with possible, that when we get there. Exactly. Like, I'm not going to fret about yeah. it right now. Uh, I want PyCrash to get the last word, then we should probably move on. Because PyCrash, you point out, it may also be uh, some other element of this. There could be a legal aspect to this. Yes, so if I can try some conspiracy vehicle myself, it could actually help help them with antitrust issues. If they say, hey, Apple is blocking us and they get an antitrust lawsuit, they can send, say, hey, we don't, and show an internal memo that they allowed Linux to continue or, or something like that. <laughs> I like that idea. Look, here's this email thread where we encourage our developers to support this. That would actually be really clever because they'd never have to produce it unless something came up. I can see that. Uh, last week on the show, Wes wasn't here, Wes, but uh, we ended up uh, talking to Dave Jones from the Podcast Index. And in there, Dave talked about monetizing podcasts with the Lightning Network. And then after the show, as we do, or after the interview with Dave, I started thinking, what if this is a way, something, you know, one if this is, what if this is one of the ways to monetize free software development, to help developers pay for their work? Because uh, one of the things that's interesting about the Lightning Network is um, you can send very small amounts very quickly. You can also run your own node so you can avoid sort of a middleman. But you can also, if you're in part of the ecosystem, and you have an open channel, you can also make a little bit of money from that too. So a project could, but it would have a, like a channel fee. And then after the show, like, I think it was like the next day. I mean, it feels like it was forever ago now as we record, but like the next day, I think we found out that the developer of Faker.js and was it Colors.js? Ah, yes. That he kind of like just totally, totally flamed out, you know, put malicious code in there that caused a loop and uh, it, it was a big story, and it really once again put a spotlight on this. We've really got to figure out how to pay these developers. And there was just another story just a couple of days ago. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the developer's name. But I mean, it's a if you listen to Coda Radio, this I mean, you guys are talking about this True. perennially. Yeah, and we all know it. We've been honestly kind of enjoying sort of this software world of software abundance that uh, we kind of just type in a command. We get the thing we want and all of the dependencies that it needs and it's up and going and we don't think about like the fact that each one of those packages has a person behind it. And, you know, I think we have some worries too that there are, there's this sort of subset of software that interacts with what these large companies 
what their goals are, and those tend to be well supported in service. But then there's other, you know, we as various communities might have other goals, and that's not always doesn't have always the resources we might want. Yeah, well, boy, um, uh, this is something that uh, you guys know about here, but we've just had a lot of struggles. Just even even when we wanted to pay a developer, definitely like had a lot that just refused to work with PayPal. And this was a bigger problem when we were part of a larger company because um, larger companies really don't even want to touch something like PayPal. They don't want they want they want you to invoice them. They'll pay you that way, either write a check or do an ACH or a wire payment. All of those require access to the Western banking system, which is also uh, have, has something we've run into issues with multiple times, is that people just don't have access to that. And so I have had more failures trying to pay free software developers than I have actually been able to pay them. And it's to the point where, like, we don't really talk about like, let's do a fundraiser on the show because my nightmare scenario is we raise like five grand and then I can't get it to somebody because I've run into that so many times. And I know it's frustrating for these developers because I've been told a lot that they just don't even bother asking for donations or contributions because it's such a pain in the ass for them to deal with it. Now, there's no universal solution to this, right? Like, this is a really complicated problem because... There's a lot of countries involved with a lot of laws that don't necessarily work with other countries' laws. So I don't want to make it sound like it's, a, it's like an easy problem to solve. But as time goes on, I start to feel like it might be an urgent, desperate problem to solve because we do see these developers flaming out. But in background, we get so much more like there's so much more. I guess it's common knowledge in the free software community that just about everyone is totally burned out and everybody is kind of overtapped. And it's kind of, it's just, that's the starting point. And people that are in the community that speak with these developers, it's just common knowledge. But maybe those of us out here consuming things via like a Linux distro package manager or NPM, we don't really kind of have that exposure to it. And so we don't really appreciate how bad the problem is because we're not really exposed to it. We kind of have a luxury of just getting to consume it at the top level. So it was sort of after listening to Dave talk about ways to monetize content with this lightning network, I started thinking, what if there was a way, because all of the technology is there, the ability to send payments around the world, the ability to automate it. Maybe, you know, you do a pull request, it automatically, you have a wallet that automatically has a few sats set aside and it, it sends a developer a contribution. You set the amount, kind of like a pay for what you want model. That's how they're doing it with the podcast index. And I thought, man, it's all there. And on top of it, it's all free software. But we definitely, you know, we touched a nerve because it's considered a third rail topic right now, like so many things have become. Uh, and I think a lot of it comes from a good place. The concern comes from, honestly, people have just kind of had it with inaction with climate change. And so they see these blockchain technologies, and there's two kinds. And one is the proof of work style, which is what Bitcoin is, that just grinds it out. And I think people have the view that that's sort of like the world's on fire and now Bitcoin is coming along and it's throwing fuel on that fire. You know, like we don't, we're at a point where we can't add anything more. And I, I definitely appreciate that because I know multiple friends who have chosen not to have kids because of the climate impact that having children has. So I, I totally can appreciate like how strong people care about this. 
this is probably the number one thing that I heard about. So as we, as we kind of cover this, I just, I have a couple of things that I want to mention, and then we're going to get into the email and we'll just kick it around. Consider a world where crypto automates large swaths of the financial services, just does things, basic contracts, financial transactions, paying for goods. It just does that. And it does it in an automated fashion. If you look at the banking system, I, mean, I don't know if people that listen for a while, you might recall I used to work for a local bank. We had at one point 115, 120 servers for our 40 branch operation, right? We had a mainframe, we had a data center. We, just that one little bank, right? And there's so many of those kinds of banks in the United States, not to mention MasterCard and Visa and your Bank of Americas and your Wells Fargo. It's currently estimated, although these numbers are hard to track and they don't really like to publicize it, but it's currently estimated that the footprint of the global financial system is about 3% of all emissions. And it's estimated that Bitcoin is 0.1%. And I think there's a common misconception that if Bitcoin was doing more transactions, it would use more power, but that's not how the network works. Bitcoin uses the same amount of power for one transaction or for a thousand transactions. That's how the system works. And when it comes to the environmental impact of these kinds of things, things have changed recently. China changed the variables this summer. China kicked out all Bitcoin miners, and they were getting to be a large part of the Bitcoin network. People are a little uncomfortable about that in the Bitcoin community. It was getting close to like 70% of the capacity was in China, and China kicked them all out. Also, anecdotally, just 50% of the coal consumed in this last year was consumed by China for their power. So they have a real problem over there, right? So they had to shut this thing down. The vast majority of that mining power moved to the United States, but they did it in 2021 where the environmental impact is a big concern. And these are businesses now. These are data centers, right? These aren't bros with mining rigs in their mom's basement that are hooked up to the wall, right? Each rig starts at $15,000 and they need thousands of them, right? These are companies, they're public companies now, and they have an image and they also have a bottom line. And for their mining operation to be profitable, they have to chase cheap renewable energies. So as that business moved over to the United States, they did an interesting thing. They played it really smart. Uh, For example, there's a mining facility now in Niagara Falls. And they buy and sell surplus energy from the plant right there, hydropower right there at the facility. They previously were coal-powered in China. And so they can buy energy cheap from the power plant. And if the power plant needs that energy back, they sell it back and they shut down their mining. So they still make money because they sell the power back and they spin down their mining operations so there's more availability. And there's also a huge explosion in 2021. This just happened since the summer. So this is new stuff. But there has been a big utilization of what they call stranded or flared natural gas. And this blew my mind. In just North Dakota alone, 20% of the natural gas is what they call stranded. It's too difficult to take care of it. So they just burn it. Have you ever seen one of those big smokestacks that has a flame at the top? That's a byproduct. And it's natural gas and they just burn it because it, yeah, it's kind of hard. So they can now build these facilities with these miners there. And because these are data centers that don't require high-speed connections, like maybe a Google data center, they just need to get the blockchain. They can be out in these remote areas. And they're unique business partners with these operations because they optimize for the lowest kilowatt hour. And so they're kind of this energy of the last resort buyer, the kind of junk energy. And When people get really kind of fired up about the energy use of Bitcoin, it's kind of the first flag that maybe they don't really understand how the energy market works. There's a bunch of this wasted energy that hasn't been monetized. 
And there's also a category, this is happening in Texas, and some people are dismissing it because Ted Cruz has attached his name to it. But if you set that aside, if you don't collapse this down to a single variable, Ted Cruz, and you look at what they're doing, they're stabilizing the renewable grid so that there's consistent demand. Because there's a massive efficiency loss when they have to ramp these operations up and then ramp these operations down. And it's not like they have like a big bank of Elon batteries where they're storing this stuff. So these mining operations work as a bit of a computational battery that absorbs the load that makes the renewables profitable. So these rich who are never going to make renewables a thing unless they get rich off of it are now making money. They're now getting paid to use renewables and they're making these renewables actually profitable. They're making them acceptable to the market. And this is obviously to the best interest of these mining operations as well. That's the market dynamics here. And if we figure this out, if, if we figure out a way to kind of leverage this junk energy, this burn-off energy, then not only have we solved a problem that may make renewables easier to adopt, which is great because a lot of people are going electric with their cars, so we need a better grid. The power use problem is coming one way or another. So what would be great is if we could kind of find a way for the industry to work together. And here's my thinking on the problem. Blockchain and the Bitcoin stuff, no matter how much you hate it, it's not going away. And if you shun it, and if the Congress creators fight it, and you shame people for using it, it'll just go into the shadows. It's never going away. For better or for worse. So why not direct it in a positive direction? Something that can help everyone. And then if we solve the market dynamics around renewables... We've also just got this incredible blockchain technology that has a secure, decentralized transactional system that also provides sound, hard money. The upshots of this are so enormous. And the entire reason we say let's not do it is because we're concerned about the possible environmental impact, the possible energy use. So we're saying let's not do something because of what might happen. Instead of let's figure out a way to make this work and we'll deal with the problem. And we'll innovate our way through the problem like you're seeing the industry start doing since the China crackdown. You're already seeing it happen. You're seeing the market incentives drag them in this direction. It's because what makes, that's what makes them money. So if we could somehow harness that greed for better and get all of this incredible decentralized blockchain technology, everyone wins. Now, Ben wrote in. He said, you talked about how the blockchain isn't audible on a public ledger. But the podcast index does not have any public governance documents or finances. I agree that there's a problem with 501c3 organizations, but as a private organization, the podcast index has no requirement to release anything. And as far as I can tell, they haven't released any finances or governances. I believe that the folks in charge are currently on the top or on the up and up, but if they leave, that could change. I just don't really necessarily agree with the point that they need to release that information. I mean, they're just a small LLC company. I think we could use something better for these kinds of things. And maybe we're building those tools right now. But I, like, I just don't necessarily agree that in order to run a useful index for podcasting that isn't managed by a mega corporation, they don't have to be the absolute opposite and be some sort of, I guess, what would that be? A, a charity, I guess, maybe, that where you'd be fully transparent? Yeah, or a commercial interest corporation. Uh, sorry, community interest corporation is what we call them in the UK. There's an awful lot to unpack in what you've said there. There's, there's several shows worth of discussion topics. Indeed. Uh, right. <laughs> tucked, uh, tucked away in there. I think um, a couple of the interesting points I want to touch on, uh, aside from the crypto. So rewarding open source contributors 
and uh, open source contributors burning out, flaming out. If you're working really hard on something and you're not receiving any compensation for your time and effort, then the motivation to flame out and stop working on it is higher than if you've found a way to get some compensation for your, you know, the, the effort that you've invested in something. So that's kind of a catch-22 because I know from personal experience it is hard to put the necessary legal and financial frameworks in place to receive financial contribution for your projects and effort that then becomes a continuing motivator to keep those projects and what have you alive. I've, I've been through that. It is difficult. I'm currently going through a tax assessment at the moment because of things to do with the Ubuntu podcast even. You know, we had a crowdfunder for that for, for 18 months and that, that shone a light on me from the um, tax authority in the UK and I've had to do an additional tax assessment just from, I don't know, £170 or something. <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a lot of, you know, personal investment to take a relatively small amount of money for, you know, something that, you know, somebody thinks I'm giving a couple of pounds to, uh, you know, a podcast that I, I like. So that's difficult. But overcoming that then creates a feedback loop for developers to then get some reward for their effort and then be motivated to continue working on something and not get burned out by it because they're getting something in return for their effort. Hopefully, something that is equitable. That's the bigger challenge to solve is what is you know reasonable return on your time and effort. Now, the other thing you talk about is the way that the energy markets work in relation to um, vast compute resources. And what's interesting in this country is the largest data center providers in the UK now are the energy companies. So it is the energy companies operate the largest, most cost-effective data centers in the UK. Years ago, when I started working on data suites, bandwidth was the premium thing that you used to pay for and energy was just something that was racked and monitored and you would pay for as you go but today bandwidth is in air quotes free and it's all about your energy consumption and also more importantly your ac requirement (laughs) your cooling requirement it's all about energy delivery so the economics of the data center have been completely tipped on their head in the last sort of 15 years And here in the United States, our ancestry for data centers goes to telecommunications rather than to energy companies, though energy companies have always been part of it. So from pretty much the very beginning, bandwidth was considered basically the cheap part of having a data center. So the way that it works in the UK now is basically the way it's always kind of worked in the United States. You pay for space, you pay for HVAC, and you pay for energy. Those are the primary things you pay for. The bandwidth is like minuscule compared to all the rest of it. But when it comes to some of the other things that you said, Chris, like you mentioned the 501c3 thing, like the correct thing for something like this would probably be a business association. I'm not, I'm not financial expert or lawyer or whatever, but like typically organizations like, uh, like that one would be organized as a 501c6, like the Linux Foundation is. It's officially organized as a trade association or a business association as a non-for-profit. That gives you considerably more flexibility than a organization for the public interest, which is what a 501c3 is legally defined as. And so that's a thing. From the 
funding perspective, I want to kind of echo a little bit about what Martin said about how difficult that, that, you know, that initial hump is difficult, but then after you're there, it's probably smooth sailing. Like it's still a bumpy ride all the way through, but like, regardless of what country you're in, like I've told you before about like why I don't take money because it's, it's not that I'm not set up to do it. I, I used to do freelancing. So I do actually have the experience to set up a structure to take in money for donations and whatnot, but it's a bunch of extra work and the IRS or your equivalent in whatever country you're in, they will spend an inordinate amount of effort to audit you for so little money. And it is such a waste of everyone's time. And this problem doesn't go away when you switch to cryptocurrencies. In most countries, cryptocurrencies make it worse, not better. If you take a tiny amount of money in crypto, like the IRS flips out at you like super hard. So like it sort of depends on the attitudes of the individual regulators, the countries, where they live, how things are structured. Like most countries are not El Salvador who have decided to recognize a cryptocurrency as an official secondary currency. That is a huge pain in the butt area right now. I kind of take a like a five, 10 year view of those sorts of issues because you are starting to have like the mayor of New York and the mayor of Miami are now getting paid in Bitcoin. So there are fairly public officials that are starting to do this. So it's going to move this thing forward here in the States. I think that in, when I'm reading through Ben's email here, what kind of struck me was um, he's just a, he says he considers himself a blockchain skeptic, which that seems pretty fair. But he says, you know, when we're talking about the climate impact of Bitcoin, one of the things you have to consider is like, I don't think this is Ben. He says, I don't think it's proven itself to even be necessary or justified. So like, what are we getting in return? And see, that's an area where people who maybe aren't familiar with what's going on, because it's such a dense community with all these different terms and languages. That's a pretty reasonable perspective to have. But I've been looking at this and I'm very impressed. There's a lot of different things from different access to financials that are maybe available to people that don't have the best credit or really bad credit. That's something that's becoming more common using decentralized technology, and it's still very early and risky right now. It's now possible also for people to get take loans out against their Bitcoin, giving people access to some financing that maybe have bad credit or maybe have maxed out a credit card and they're in a tough situation. Like myself, I have no medical insurance. Uh, if I were to get in a car accident and I had a big bill, I would take a loan out against my Bitcoin. It wouldn't be something I'd want to do, but that's the situation I find myself in. It may save my life. It gives me that kind of access. Every piece of equipment in the studio that we're using right now to record, with the exception of the mic Brent is using, was bought with Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, I turned it into something that then I used to make a living off of. So I think there's some uses there, but there's a fascinating area of development because one of the things that's complex about this is there's lots of different blockchains and all these different things that are happening. And one of the things that's interesting is there are types of blockchains like Chainlink that are bringing in outside information that's verifiable and secure and providing it as a feed to the blockchain. So an example of this is they've partnered with AccuWeather and they've partnered with some ground sensor stations and some satellite sensor stations. And I'll have links about this in the show notes if you're curious. And what they are able to do with this information is they are now providing through a series of different decentralized exchanges and funding methods and some companies they're working with, they're providing insurance to farmers in countries that have no insurance framework where their land perhaps suffers some kind of disaster, some sort of climate-related disaster, because it is provable. Was there rain? They're using seismic sensors. They have satellite data that's coming in via these oracles into the blockchain. They can see all of this, and it's not like a disputable thing. So they are able to provide insurance to these farmers now that have no access to insurance. Now, you zoom that out, 
And you think about where something like that could go. And that blockchain, that blockchain is using what's called proof of staking. So it doesn't, it doesn't actually use the intensive CPU, GPU mining either. Uh, it's a very environmentally friendly. So you zoom out where there's different types of technologies. It's not all just one thing. And they're able to offer things that it, it could be possible that in 10, 15, 20 years, we have alternatives that are just simply never been available to people like people that have never had access to banking. Maybe they've never had access to insurance. Maybe they've never had access to credit and loans. That would be me on all three counts. And I'm sitting here in the Seattle area living a fairly comfortable lifestyle. And I still have those problems. And it's just getting worse, not to mention people all around the world. So they, they have legitimate uses today, right? There's people that are in this virtual room right now that have paid for their home using Bitcoin. There's real value to that. That gave wealth to the middle class during a time where we've had a dot-com boom, a, tight, a 2008 recession. And now we have the financial issues and the, and the supply chain issues and the inflation issues that are going on now. And it gave the generation, my generation that's coming up during all of that, access to wealth. I now have a sustainable business because early on, I warmed my studio by GPU mining Bitcoin. That's something. And that made a difference. And now I provide for a family with that. And everybody out there, so these things are how they have real uses and, and it's just getting more and more adoption. But it's really early days and there's a lot of risk and there's still a lot of scams. There's a lot of things that are going to go wrong. There's still a lot of regulation issues that are going to come up. But I feel like there's actually more opportunity with some of this and it's kind of thrilling that it's free software. I, Brent, you've been kind of exposed to a lot of this recently and I, I know that you've kind of come around a little bit on this subject too. You probably came into it a little skeptical, I would imagine. Yeah, I got to say this trip has totally informed me in this area. I didn't, you know, I was always interested in Bitcoin, but it seemed like such a thick pool to jump into to even gain some basic knowledge. But thankfully, you and I started this lightning node project up up in the your office. And I think you mentoring me through some of the jargon, but also some of the concepts and some of the problems that this is really solving, it's really made me realize that the future seems a bit bright in many ways. Um, many of us would probably be interested in the technology that goes into even making these coins possible. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating landscape of mostly open source technology, as far as I understand. And the fact that we could run that on a little node on an old computer upstairs and really participate in a low level, like it's, it's almost like you have a little bank in your computer upstairs. It's, it's, it's super fascinating. And so if anyone's not really sure about all these concepts, dig in. Like it, there doesn't need to be a risk to dig in and read a whole bunch. There's some fascinating podcasts even. I, I want to mention only one. Um, it's called What Bitcoin Did. There's some amazingly intelligent people who are on there from all walks of life that are very informed in these topics and have come often from the traditional world and are suggesting the value of what Bitcoin and related technologies can solve. And so I've been just super fascinated to the point, Chris, where you have to say, no, 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 we got to focus on Linux content too, not just Bitcoin stuff. And I think that drives a little bit of this conversation, but I think it's one that many of us who are interested in open source technologies and desktop Linux even, that's kind of the stuff that got us excited in the first place to dive into this realm. And I think Bitcoin and all of the cryptocurrencies can be fun 
in that same way of sort of discovery and solving real world problems with some alternative technologies. Yeah, it feels very much like we are at the stage with this technology where things were right before the dot-com boom. We are leading up to the dot-com boom for crypto and there will be a kind of a pop at some point, could be, I don't know how many years, and then there will be a few obvious valuable contenders that remain. Your Amazons, right? You'll have your pets.com and you'll have your Amazons and uh, your Ask Jeeves and your Googles. And that's what we're going to see shake out over time. And it's just super early days. But Wes, what do you think about this idea though that, you know, it, it hasn't really necessarily proved itself and the potential bad seems seems bad enough that we probably shouldn't even attempt it. Yeah, I'm not sure I find that super compelling. I mean, I think I can understand the argument, but I think we're just going to, we're going to see. I tend to agree with you that once these sort of genies are out of the bottle, I mean, not that we can't put them back in, but that that just goes against a lot of human nature. And I mean, it seems like a lot of this stuff is going to end up, especially as you say, after after bubbles, after this, you know, the hype cycle we're obviously in right now, we'll see what sticks, right? Like, I think there are some valuable concepts. Maybe the current implementations aren't the thing that we need, right? But we're lowering barriers to entry. We're making things more programmable. There's a lot of excitement, I think, Brent, as you've seen, right? And yeah, okay, maybe a lot of this, maybe most of it doesn't go anywhere, but I think we need to remind ourselves that it's it's useful to be open. And I think we can, you know, as long as we've set up the appropriate guardrails and such, and where that's a, that's a whole other thing to debate and talk about. But... Technology Connections on YouTube just had a great video. About, it's about can openers nominally, but just talking about how not open we can be at times. And look, I don't, I don't, I don't know that this can take over everything, but some ideas might stick around, and it's it's worth letting ourselves explore. I think too. One of the things that Brent and I found fascinating when we were sitting, we're sitting on the couch and we're doing deep dives into these different communities. So many parallels with the Linux community. Yeah, Brent's over there shaking his head like, yeah, totally. Like, uh, I sure am. Just all of like the, the types of conflicts that they have and the ideals. There's some groups that, that are like, you know how in the Linux community you have like people that are like really extreme about the GPL and, and really the, you know, strict definitions of freedom. Well, in, in the cryptocurrency communities, you have people that are like super, super opinionated about decentralization. Right. It's like they, they, everything has to be hyper decentralized or it's garbage. And then you have other people on the other end. They're like, no, centralization is efficient. Right. And it's this, it's this whole, it's just a different debate, but it's the same exact dynamic. And you have all of these open source projects. Some of them are managed like a clown show and some of them are like professional operations. And you can kind of look at them from like that kind of standpoint. And there's a lot of parallels there. Um, I agree that just because it's open source doesn't make it necessarily good. But I think like all tools, it just really depends on how we use it. And in a way, pushing against it seems counterproductive and trying to figure out how to work with it seems proactive. But maybe we're about to get more information in just a couple of days. There is a hearing that sounds a little hostile because it's called cleaning up cryptocurrency. But there is a hearing in the United States government on January 20th, 2022. They're going to have a hearing on the energy use, and they're going to specifically look at proof of work, which is the style that Bitcoin is. So there may be more information there. My, you know, my expectations are set to low, <laughs> to be honest, but perhaps uh, in the show notes, though, if you're curious about this topic and really, we're not trying to go on about this. Hopefully this is the last word for a while. I will link to a incredibly good report. It's a little jargon heavy because they're deep in the industry, but this guy really knows his stuff. It's a PDF. It's like 160 pages. 
is quite the report on this ecosystem. If you want one definitive resource to kind of come up to speed on things, that's the PDF. And then also I have the Cambridge University's Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index, where they're doing a real-time monitoring of the, uh, you know, comparatively to some industries. I think they left out banking. But uh, if you want some numbers on the current energy usage as we know it and where it's all distributed, that is in the show notes as well. And with that, hopefully we're done talking about this. Linode.com slash unplugged. Head on over to Linode and get yourself $100 for 60 days on a new account and you support the show. Linode is fast and reliable cloud hosting. You should really try it for yourself. Maybe your next project, maybe the next thing you want to try out. They have CentOS Stream 9 on there now. Alma Linux and Rocky Linux are all available on Linode. If you've been wondering what that user experience is like, why not create an account, support the show, and try it out? And with $100, you could actually deploy some really nice systems <laughs> or mess around with some serious storage. In fact, they've been rolling out MVME PCIe storage, so you're going to get fantastic performance on those systems. They have some super high-end CPU rigs as well. So if you're a performance hound, there's definitely some stuff over there that you're going to love. If you're also, I guess, would it be called a value hound? I don't know if that's a thing, but if that's what you do, Linode can be 30 to 50% cheaper than the big hyperscalers. And these big hyperscalers, you know, maybe they're going to try to like pull you in with their uh, offers. Sure, they got their offers. But once they got you, they've really got you in their own ecosystem, right? With their own vernacular, their own dashboards, the whole thing. And it's once you're in, man, you're really in. Linode's not like that. It's just a nice, clean user interface, like like really kind of the apex of what you'd want when you get to use a cloud provider's dashboard. Simple to understand, but you can go deep when you need to. They have a fantastic API and a command line client that works great too. So it's just like that nice package. So, you know, it's also a great option maybe if you want to do something like a multi-cloud setup, you know, tie it all together with a little Nebula backend. You know what I'm saying? Go try it out. Linode.com slash unplugged. Get $100 for 60 days on a new account and you go there to support the show. Linode.com slash unplugged. Okay, so we have a little tradition here on this show where we run a rolling server because nobody should ever do that. And we thought, let's do it so you don't have to. And also just to kind of uh, make Wes sweat because nothing really, you know, bothers Wes. So you you got to put him really on the spot. We thought, let's own our updates right here live on the air. And it's our first time for the tumbleweed. And we have, we have a new, we have like a new theme. We have like a new kernel, the whole thing. So let's do it. Okay, Wes Payne, we've got a brand new kernel, plus we have our ZFS packages. What are we looking at in terms of update work here? 985 packages to upgrade, 3 to downgrade, 7 new, and 67 to remove. That's an overall download size of just over a gig. Oh! After the operation, an additional 300 megs will be used. Okay, not quite the arch numbers we're used to seeing, but I'll take it. And it looks like we've got... Linux kernel 5.16 rolling in. Oh, all right. Is the download kicked off? No. All right, ready? let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. All right, it. and uh, hey, you know, Zipper does handily note here, a system reboot is required. Ah, good. That'll be fun. We'll see how that goes. All right, so here we go. We actually have some feedback to this, too, that we're going to get to a little bit in the show. So we'll come back to this. We'll let the updates run. So stand by, Wes. Let it go. And then and maybe after we do a few more server emails, we'll check on it, okay? Fingers crossed, everyone. 
All right. So uh, while that goes, there was a few bits of email about how we configured the server. And I think it was Joe, listener Joe, who wrote in about our ZFS setup. And he said, you're really not going to want to do your VDevs that way. So he wrote, I just finished listening to episode 439, and I was really sad. Oh, we made listener Joe sad, Wes. I know. I think this is really sweet, too, because Joe obviously cares about our data. I know. Seemingly more than we do. Perhaps. Um, And he says, I was really sad to hear about the Z-Pool design. With 20-plus disks, you should have at least two, if not three, VDevs to help for all the reasons you mentioned, which is the rebuild, the resiliency, and honestly, just ZFS stability. ZFS has a history of not handling 15-plus drive VDevs well. And then they uh, provides a handy TrueNAS link, so <laughs> oh, yeah, probably, yeah, probably I, trust I, that. I can see people nodding their head in the uh, <laughs> Jitsi room. <laughs> I warned you! <laughs> I know, I know. And so uh, we have been, we've been debating it back and forth, and... I'm open to this. I don't love it because we're going to lose some storage. That's why right, we, right. We, we're, we're storage maximalists here, and we just wanted uh, all of the storage. But I also don't want to have a problem child. <laughs> you know, like how At much the end is of the day, a, you do want the server to work? I want it to stay up. Like if it's uh-huh. actually going to affect stability. All right, now you got my attention. That's where I draw the line. Risk of data loss. Okay, maybe because we were going to have a clone server, and so in th- in theory, we'd have a mirror. But when you start saying like the server's going to be crashing or going up and down or I'm going to have yeah, issues. Yeah, that just drives you crazy. Yeah, I don't want that. We should at some point, Chris, like, you know, off to the side, have like a dedicated discussion about your storage configuration, what you actually want to do, and what your actual options are for your current storage plan and your growth plan. Because I, I think we just haven't seriously thought through that um, for your for your server storage design. Because I think you'd kind of take it you're kind of assuming that nothing is going to change and we should really seriously think about what it would look like if we changed some of those knobs and, and, and thought about like what you actually would like to get to closer to an ideal state for your storage setup. All the storage. All the storage. That's what I'm trying <laughs> well, to get to. All the storage is not exactly a well-defined <laughs> option. So we should, we should figure that out. Like at some point, you know, cause I've been doing, I do a lot of this like professionally and personally, we should, you know, spend some time and like, actually sit down and like maybe make diagrams and charts and stuff of like figuring out what your options are. So we can actually do some proper planning here because once you fully initialize this and you start, like you, you don't have a, a backup system to shift data around to be able to reorganize your storage. You're basically stuck. So we have this really small window where if <laughs> like, you're going to regret this choice. We can fix it. But like, once you start piling stuff on, um, we can't fix it anymore until you get another machine. Stay a while and listen. We had a fork of the road, son. Um, okay, so, all right. Well, okay, let's slow down. Brent, we got some other server. We got a lot of emails about building a rack and about what we can do with these Dell servers. So let's maybe start there while Wes has down updates. How's your updates going? Are they In progress. Okay, all right. So, uh, Brent, do you want to start with maybe our first one in that regard? Then we'll work our way down the list. Shouter in our matrix room uh, suggested a few things about the new server, which will inform our server rack build. So here we go. He says, Dell 12th gen is fresh air compliant. So it was built to operate at up to 113 Fahrenheit ambient temps. I think that might help us in that garage. For a given number of hours per year without losing warranty. Perfect for Jupiter hosting garage colo. All right, let's load it up. So I was originally under the assumption, because last August when you and I were leaving on the trip, it was darn hot in that garage. So I, I even remember 
It may have doing gotten a to, few Band-Aid solutions in the ceiling and stuff to try to keep the temps down. But It may have even got as high as 120. Well, that's it. And I wondered, Chris, do you have any data recorded on the temperatures in that place? No, I should get a sensor in there. I really <laughs> I should. I think you have the means. Alex, I can see him listening, just shaking his I head. I just don't here. want to set up a Z-Wave network. But, um, you know, the other thing that's tricky about that, right, is sometimes in the summer, you pull in there with a hot car, too. So there's that as well. Yeah, so I wondered, you know, he, he suggests that 113 for a number of hours per year. But yeah. this could be, you know, a few months at a time. That is impressive, though. Strong argument for doing nothing? <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got another one. Keep going, keep going. All right, he says the number two. Podman, awesome. Please produce some content around networking, rootless, and handling PUID, PGID is different from Docker. Some comments around Linux Server I.O. too and how you'd apply a multi-service user setup for Jacket, Torrent, Plex setups, and VPN WireGuard slash Swag setup with the networking namespaces and routing between pods. Oh, I'm already regretting <laughs> that we did it. I am. Because twice in the last week, you know, there's been times where I'm like, oh, this, all this documentation assumes only Docker or this easy try this script only, cons- only assumes Docker. And it's just like, I ended up setting up blank systems just so I could run Docker and not run it on my super nice new server. <laughs> that's what happened. That's, okay, what happened. that's, a, that's maybe a small backfire. Because the, the idea was, is I'll figure it out. I'll try it and I'll get it working and it'll be, it'll be awesome. We'll talk about it on the show. And the reality was, is oh, I just want to get this going because I got five other <laughs> things to do. And this isn't what I sat down to do, right? I didn't sit down to solve this problem right now. And that's just human nature, I suppose. Uh, so don't do like we do stick with what you know. Uh, you know, and he also calls for us to like post some of our, our information on Git. Maybe we'll get to that point. I don't really think we want anybody using what we're using right now. I'll tell you what. All right. That's a lot of feedback. <clears throat> Are we good? Are we good on the feedback? I, I think I feel good about that. And I just want to say thank you everyone for your feedback. Yeah. Make, really, making us think this week. We have so many wonderful audience members who know so much more about this and have much better ideas. Yeah. We, we, we got, got to be grateful for that. And I, we got some of the most pushback we've got in a while, but they were all good conversations. Linuxunplugged.com slash contact. Thank you very much. We'd like to hear more. Yeah. Keep them coming. Now go refill our inbox. You know, that's what happens next. All right. So here's a pick that's really only going to be uh, great for you Plasma users. But you know how I've gone on and on for a while about how tiling would be best for me. If I could designate some virtual desktops or some some desktops as tiling and some virtual desktops mm. as just free floating. Yeah, right. Like partial but desktop yeah. separated. Yeah. So like I'd probably have like my email and 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 chat app as a tiled desktop and maybe like a terminal and you know yep. I but then maybe I want my browser and my notes to be free floating. Well, I think it's called Bismuth or by Smuth. <laughs> I love this part of the show. I know. It always comes time to pronounce something for the first time out loud. Uh, and it is a KDE Plasma extension that lets you tile your windows automatically. Oh. Manage them via a keyboard, just like a regular tile and desktop. And it lets you apply it to only one particular virtual desktop. Chris, you seem to say all this like you wish you knew this like a year or two ago. Oh, man, this is so great. This is exactly what I was talking about. And I like the way it does it. And this is, I'd love to see uh, System76 support this in their Cosmic desktop. I think that'd be so great. This does look, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm trying this after the show. This extension seems familiar. Yeah, I forget who sent this to me. 
We had some feedback that suggested it, uh, I think, a month ago or so. Oh, Nev says it's not so great, though. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Now I remember, because I think I mentioned this to you like six-ish months ago as a Wayland-compatible alternative to, um, what's that one that everybody used to talk about for... Uh, Wayfire? Um, uh, Cronkite. That's it. Oh, Cronkite. This myth is forked from Cronkite. I suppose if you're a connoisseur of these kinds of things, it may be lacking. So we'll have a link to Bismuth. 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 Uh, Barksmuth. Uh, Barksmith <laughs> Forge for plasma. Uh, you know, I, I realize it's not for everybody, but you know, maybe give it a go. See what, see if it works for you. It links to all that kind of stuff are at linuxonplug.com slash four, four, one. Remember we do get together every Sunday at noon Pacific. We get going around 1230 Pacific and well, this week we got going a little bit late. Well, sometimes we just like to hang out. And if you're a member, you get access to what was essentially an entire show that we did before we sat down to record. Sometimes several shows. Yeah, but this week it was definitely at least one show in the pre-show. Uh, so you can go to UnpluggedCore.com to support the show directly. Or if you'd like to support the entire network, that's at Jupiter.Party. Then you get all the shows ad-free. That's pretty sweet. Brent, it sure has been great having you down here at the Studs. Thanks for being such a great host. You're definitely leaving it better than you found it. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I try to apply to every place. Although that life. bathroom's in rough shape, but I think we got it from here. But, you know, I'm just noticing, like, the lights are down, the floor's missing. It's just a disaster up there. There's a giant monument to Brent installed yeah. in there now, too? Yeah. <laughs> and it's sturdy. I think, is, that, is that copper? One of the kids actually wrote, good luck, Brent, on the wall, and then we painted over it, so I'm yeah. there forever. <laughs> That's true. That'll always be there. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. You're always welcome to join us live, or just grab the feed at linuxunplugged.com slash subscribe. Always appreciate you downloading and listening and sharing the show with anybody. That's also uh, that's also really nice. Word of mouth is really how podcasts grow. So we really do appreciate that. All right, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday. One of my predictions may be coming true faster than I expected. It looks like the FlatHub community is looking at ways to pay developers in 2022, and they have a whole thing here about it. I'm really pleased to see this. It looks like FlatHub's getting serious in 2022. They got a whole outline of stuff that they have for ideas on growing the FlatHub community, and we'll link to it in the show notes. It looks looks great. The most important thing is that they're going to set up a foundation through the Linux Foundation to make it so that there's somebody who could take the money. Like, the reason FlatHub couldn't do it before is because there was nobody to take the money. Hey, so, we're ready for update over here. You know what? Uh, good thing we just put one more thing in the power of the Linux Foundation. That is great. Update complete. We're ready to reboot. Let's do it. Let's kick it off, West Payne. This is going to be a long reboot, too, because it's got all them discs. What distro is it? Tumbleweed. Yep. This is our first big upgrade since we switched to Tumbleweed. We've been waiting to do it on air. How long between updates? Well, uh, been two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. Two, or so. three weeks. New kernel. And we are using ZFS. So, so the ZFS is the wild card. Hey, here. Chris. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
just to let you know, I, I was running Tumbleweed up until yesterday, and I applied probably many of these same updates that you're installing now, and it actually broke my system and broke the kernel. Where were you at the start Whoa, of the man, show? Couldn't you tell us that before we hit reboot? For what it's worth, I knew that this was gonna. Ha- I knew about this because other people had told me about it as well. All right. Oh no. Are you saying there's a bra- there's a deal breaker in here that's known? Like this is sh- is this something we should have? Is this like an arch check the news page? We never did that, but it did never bite did us. Not wash the lug room in in the lug anymore. I was just there. I was just there watching the lug room. If you just watch that, you, like uh, you you would have seen me complaining about like how I tried tried open suits. Okay, so like tumbleweed is like the one distro that I really want to run, but the distro just really, really, really hates me because uh, I can I can just do like a simple desktop installation, just run an update and it breaks. I am reasonably confident that your upgrade will succeed because the conditions in which it will fail are not present on your system. Well, I have good news. It is booting right now. Hey. I see the system coming up. It's mounted. Because the condition in which it fails is that you have the NVIDIA driver installed. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Because <laughs> NVIDIA driver is not 5.16 compatible yet. Hey, look at Wes. Wes, I think I think we got a console. Let's see if we... Oh, did, did I've, the, I've got some pings over here. The IP didn't now change. Now you got to check to see if no. ZFS came online. Yeah, that's the win. If the ZFS is there, it's a win. I thought we were doing ButterFS. ButterFS for the root, but that doesn't... We don't have to worry about oh, that. Oh, yep. Here that we go. Comes. Levi is online. Yay! Take that, everyone. It passes its first on-the-air upgrade successfully. Let's see how long it keeps that streak.